Welcome to Promethea Rising. My guest for this episode is Eddie Oldfield. Eddie chairs the Quest New Brunswick PEI Caucus, working to advance smart energy communities, and is senior lead projects and advisory services at Quest. Eddie has been promoting community resiliency in New Brunswick and beyond for over two decades. Welcome to the show, Eddie. Hi, Karen. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So why don't we start by you just telling us a little bit about your work with Quest. What do you do? Sure. Yeah, as you mentioned, I'm based here in New Brunswick on the East Coast, and uh, a lot of my work is focused on engaging communities as well as their counterparts, like their utilities in the private sector, to advance a vision of smart energy communities both here and across Canada. And we do this through a number of things, including projects and advisory services, research and networking those decision makers so that we can be more effective in our transition to a low carbon economy. Can you describe for me how you would describe the change that you're leading? Well, I think we're, we're no strangers to climate change that is occurring and that is impacting us at the local level. So I believe that the change that we are leading and that I'm involved with is addressing that climate change emergency, that slow-moving pandemic of climate change. But we're also building capacity and community support and celebrating our successes. So successes such as developing community energy plans, uh, building governance structures and capacity around implementing measures to improve energy efficiency, integrating clean energy, and conventional energy networks, improving transportation options, and of course, land use planning with an energy lens. So that was an interesting analogy, a slow-moving pandemic to describe climate change. So is that part of what makes this change difficult? This type of work that you're doing is not easy. And so what makes it so hard? Well, you're right about that. Climate change is a slow-moving pandemic, and so is the change that is needed. It's very incremental. And so it's very difficult to see immediate success. And that's why we need to celebrate the steps along the way and and recognize that those steps are very important to get us to our 2050 targets of a net zero or low carbon economy. Another key thing that is hard is the fact that many small communities struggle with their capacity. And of course, that includes staff capacity, time, financial capacity to undertake some of the initiatives. And finally, I'd say one of the hardest challenges is updating or keeping policy and legislation up to date with the changes in technology and the ways of doing things, the ways that we need to be doing things at the local level. So much of the news that we hear around climate change and cities is about cities and often the big cities, right? Very large cities. So you have a lot of experience working with smaller communities and smaller municipalities. And you you talked about the capacity issues, but maybe talk a little bit more about the unique, not only the the, uh, challenges for some of these smaller communities, but I'm also thinking that there's probably some unique opportunities with smaller communities. Well, certainly. So a smaller community has a little bit less red tape to get through. And so sometimes they can action things quicker. You know, uh, if they are a staff of 10, uh, to get a decision made can be a lot quicker. And also we're seeing some pretty innovative stuff at the local level. You know, in terms of I have one community here in New Brunswick. I just love this example. 
you know, population under 2000. And as they go about improving energy efficiency in the community and integrating electrification of transportation and clean energy, they're reinvesting those savings into other social benefits to the community. So the whole community can see themselves as part of the solution and they can buy into why we're doing this. So those uh, social benefits include free skating passes and free swimming passes, for example. It's one way to kind of engage the community beyond just addressing the climate change, but that this is about the social good and the environmental and economic good. Oh, that's a great example. So you've been on the ground in New Brunswick for a couple of decades now doing this work. Am I, am I right about that? Yes, I've been here for two decades uh, in New Brunswick, yes. Yeah, and so what is, that's an interesting perspective you have. So what are, what's the change you see doing this type of work? Well, in the late 90s, climate change wasn't really on everybody's radar. When I moved to New Brunswick to take on a role with the climate change hub at the time, when I first moved here, there was only one community that had made a commitment to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions as part of what you may know as the Federation of Canadian Municipalities uh, Partners for Climate Protection Program. And now, over the last 20 years, we now have over 55 communities in New Brunswick that have made those commitments, but also developed action plans and have started to implement those measures. And some have even fully met their original targets and are renewing their targets for deeper emission reductions. So I see a tremendous amount of progress taking place at the local level, even among smaller communities and what many consider a have-not province. I think we have a lot to offer and a lot of, lot of experience as small communities to offer. And how is the provincial government supporting local communities in New Brunswick? I, I think that sort of is quite different across the country and, and, and changes, right, with different changes in, in leadership at the provincial level. What have you seen over the years and, and how would you describe that support today? Uh, you're, at, you're right about the fact that it's different province to province. I think that our government has made commitments through its climate change action plan to address the issue of climate change, both through the provincial arms of government, but also with respect to community engagement and municipal action and also changes in the energy sector. However, policy and legislation still needs to be improved to unlock some of the potentials that exist locally and enable municipalities to move forward. So I think that in New Brunswick, we're doing some really good work. We're cleaning the electricity grid. We're exploring innovative energy solutions, whether that's small nuclear reactors, whether that's hydrogen or renewable natural gas, and of course, a range of renewable energy technologies. And a lot of things that are based are built in New Brunswick and made in New Brunswick then get exported as solutions around the world. We have a long history of doing that as a province. So I do see that this change is, is happening, but it's incremental. It will take time to get to a point where we have the perfect storm of policy and action and, and, and financial capacity to undertake the initiatives we need to be taking in order to become a net zero or low carbon economy. You mentioned New Brunswick has a history of being an exporter of solutions. How about for communities? Are there any lessons that you've seen in New Brunswick with respect to smaller municipalities and what other municipalities, big or small, across the country might be able to learn from them? Yeah, you know, I think that smaller communities really, working with those communities, you need to build relations of trust. 
And that happens through face-to-face meetings. That there's, there's nothing that better value than having face-to-face conversations and maintaining those relationships over time because they're going to rely back on you for information and expertise and guidance as they move through the journey of becoming a smart energy community. As well, it takes a community. So when we talk about small communities, there's a lot of, um, you know, everybody knows everybody almost. And so it, it, it takes a community to make that change happen. And you need that buy-in. You also need to be sensitive to cultural context. So some communities, maybe I'm not going to name any, may not believe in climate change as a, as a, a key, key emergency, but they may believe in the economic drivers of why they should undertake certain actions. So understanding that cultural context is extremely important to to communicate what needs to be done and also inclusiveness. We're not just talking to the the, the decision makers at the the council, but uh, decision makers at all levels of government and among the community. So that could include businesses, not-for-profits, social or or not-for-profit organizations, and including perhaps disadvantaged or low-income folks or even First Nations in those solutions so that we have an inclusive approach to our action on climate change community level. So you have a good idea of what communities and municipalities might need. If you could wave a magic wand and and grant local governments with one new power to fight climate change, what would it be and, and what impact would it have in building more sustainable, healthy and resilient communities? I wish I had a magic wand. <laughs> if, if there was a magic wand that could update policy and regulation in such a way that it unlocks the barriers, it removes the barriers for municipalities to develop sustainable financing for their own initiatives or to be able to encourage energy efficiency in the community at large or to build, own, and operate their own clean energy generation in a way, in such a way to offset their greenhouse gas emissions and as well capacity. So there's, there are some things around policy and regulation that need to be updated in order for municipalities to have the actual powers to undertake those initiatives. Otherwise, they're setting uh, very good and ambitious targets, but without the means to, in fact, address them. So that, if I was to wave, wave a magic wand, that's the one I would probably wave it at. So release the power and, and capacity of municipalities to do, to do good work. So what keeps you inspired to do this work? You've been doing it for at least two decades and uh, it's challenging work. You've obviously stayed in this space and have continued to grow and develop your ability to support communities. What keeps you inspired to keep doing it? Well, I'm going to start with what inspired me to start uh, in the first place, and that was the ice storm of 1998. Of course, I lived through that in Montreal at the time, and I understood that as a result of our, our planning and in the conventional sense, we were very vulnerable to the impacts of extreme weather events and, and energy was a big part of that. So that was the first inspiration. What has inspired me to continue doing this is to, to think globally about you know this issue, but to act locally and to inspire change locally by planting seeds. Again, we know it's about incremental change. So when you plant a seed and and you keep planting those seeds, you start to see the change that you're looking for over time. Like I said earlier, we've gone from one to 55 communities in New Brunswick that now have action plans on climate change. And I think this, what keeps me inspired to do this work is that we are making our communities a better place to live 
work and play, and of course, for future generations as well. So that's interesting. It was a bit of a crisis that got you engaged. Often, you know, when systems need to change or people become motivated to change, it is a, a crisis that is that first step that is the motivator, right? So it's interesting you had that uh, that uh, experience that sort of motivated you to get into this space. Yeah, it's unfortunate that we need one of those experiences to to awaken to the reality and be inspired to make a difference. And unfortunately, I think that's how most people react. You know, we need those aha moments. So we had an ice storm or a flood or a fire. And then we go, oh, we're vulnerable. What do we do? Rather than being proactive. And, and so I think that's still going to be the case. But through a lot of the work that we do and a lot of the engagement and the work that communities are taking, I believe that more people are getting engaged just because it's the right thing to do. And they care about their planet. They care about their community and they care about what they are going to leave for their their sons and daughters and future generations. And you mentioned earlier just understanding the community and what matters in that community. There are lots of other benefits that can come from doing community energy planning. And, and so I would imagine that some of these other benefits are, are also motivating for people. Oh, yes. When you talk to, you know, I don't want to use the word average person, uh, but uh, any anybody on the street about these topics, not everybody's an expert. Not everybody understands the, the challenge or the necessary solutions. So when, when you talk, have those conversations, sometimes what resonates with one person might be economic development. Another person might be more concerned about, you know, the environmental benefits. Another person might be more concerned with the health or social benefits and all of those can be addressed through community energy planning and taking action on climate change. And we've proven that. We see that time and time again. Lots of examples across the country of successful projects that provide those co-benefits to a community. And I think it's important to engage people in those conversations so that they don't just see it as, uh, you know, this is some scientific problem or this is a problem that upper levels of government need to address. We're all part of that solution and we all benefit from taking action. So another great lesson is don't don't forget or overlook the co-benefits of this work as well. So what, what lies ahead? What are some of the interesting things that you've got coming up that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, we've made a lot of progress to date and we continue to work with communities across Canada. I, I think what lies ahead is trying to move that needle even further forward. So engaging more communities to take action or, or create those, those action plans. Also helping unlock barriers or remove those barriers, whether that's policy and regulation or it's building capacity or even the skills, knowledge and competencies at the local level. So that municipal governments will have the necessary capacity to to take action. I think what lies ahead is those communities that have made commitments and those that will be making commitments are now moving forward with implementing their action plans. And so we're going to see over the next 10 years a lot of progress in terms of both reducing greenhouse gas emissions, a contributor to climate change, but also improving the environmental, social, and health benefits to their communities. And of course, that includes the economic part. So especially with COVID, a lot of communities are, are very concerned with you know, economic sustainability and recovery post-COVID. And I believe that community energy planning is an, a very important economic tool for communities to, to latch onto because it creates jobs, it, it keeps energy dollars local, 
that can be reinvested in other services in the community, keeping that that quality of services available to to their citizens. I think we're going to see a lot of progress in the next 10 years. And really, we're not going to meet our target, our 2050 carbon targets unless we have the involvement of communities, which is where shovels go in the ground. It's where we feel the impacts and it's where the action needs to take place. So do you feel that with that progress that you're anticipating that we will see, that we might shift from that incremental progress into something that moves a little bit faster? Oh, yes, I I do believe that. I I mean, I'm seeing that already in the last, especially the last five years, that if if we were to look at a graph, you know, this is not just a straight line now. This is a sort of an upwards line where we're seeing an increased amount of engagement, attention, awareness, commitment, actions. And discussions, uh, I mean, almost every conference or every meeting that I've ever been to now has some focus on, you know, addressing this issue of climate change attached to whatever the the main topic is. I I think we're going to see not just incremental progress, but I'm not even sure what the word is, but a, a faster transition to a more sustainable economy, a more sustainable community and society as a whole. Well, thank you, Eddie. This has been really interesting. And, and I appreciate you reminding us to always remember the, the successes along the way and so that we can point to them and, and we can extrapolate them out into the future and, and see where we're going. So thank you very much. I appreciate this very much, Karen. Thank you. It is always inspiring to talk to people who can reflect on years of experience and who can point to great success and progress and can see moving forward that that momentum is only building. Join me for the next episode of Promethea Rising as we continue to interview people like Eddie who are building an energy-conscious Canada.